0: And register for the inaugural Every
1: Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Oh,
0: hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you a little bit about a podcast called Big Questions with Cal Fussman. Cal Fussman is, of course, the best selling author and Esquire columnist. He talks to people who have lived extraordinary lives from uh, Dr. Oz to Tim Ferriss. Scooter Braun, who is uh, Justin Bieber's manager, and they have really deep, thoughtful conversations, maybe the kind of conversations you've never heard with these people, and you'll end up with your burning questions answered and a few new ones to think about. I checked it out this week, really enjoyed it. I encourage you to subscribe to Big Questions with Cal Fussman now in your favorite podcast app, perhaps Stitcher or Apple Podcast. Thanks to Big Questions, here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Uh, this is a back-to-backer. We, uh, we rocked it live yesterday.
1: Yeah, thanks to the On Air Festival for having us out in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn for an on-stage event to which we all brought our children.
0: I'm going to say best green room of my life. A really great green room. We had the kids in the green room, they're eating snacks. It's At the Wythe Hotel. And we had uh, the great Jenna Weiss Berman asking us questions on stage, our former editor. Uh, The hardest question to answer was, how long will you be doing this? (laughs) Evan just like shrank into his chair. I did like I'm the only one that offered an answer. Evan's Evan's answer was like, "Uh, you know, things change. (laughs) Um, I like that Evan took a picture of our kids and uh said that we were just holding the seats warm uh until they could take over for us, which is a great idea. So, uh, you know, how many more episodes do you think we need to do before we can get, turn it over to them? <laughs> Guy will be ready soon, he's he's looking eager. Um, this week on the show, I talked to Joe Weisenthal, uh, who started off as one of the people who got Business Insider off the ground. He is now on TV on Bloomberg. Um, He's a really interesting person. Uh, I can't really think of that many people like him. Um, he's really obsessed with financial markets and the like minutia of everything that's happening all over weird business stories. Um, but he's like a guy on TV with a suit and a tie talking, but he's very much not that in person. So uh, really, really interesting interview. And if I'm not mistaken, he was also
1: a journalist who was profiled by the New York Times. There is a
0: there is a profile of him in the New York Times magazine that's kind of about how he like works all the time and gets up extremely early and like is the first person to like tweet out the jobs numbers when they're released and that kind of thing. That profile is actually a good, if you feel like like reading something before listening to it, it's a good place to pick up uh, this interview from, I think. One of my wife's best friends from high school is married to Joe. Yeah. And when that article came out, I think it was like a little bit of a thing for her because the whole like point of the story is like, this man does nothing but work, literally nothing. He wakes <laughs> up at four in the morning and this is his <laughs> whole life. <laughs> and I think for her, that was a little bit of a weird experience. I hear that. I hear that. Um, This show is brought to you, as always, by MailChimp. Uh, If you are getting up before everyone else to send out an email newsletter for your project, uh, they are a great way to do it. They got all kinds of new tools over there on MailChimp. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, A little marketing automation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know about that. And uh, they have a thing now where you can make landing pages. This is something I really like because it's actually weirdly hard to make a one-page internet site. You know, like, let's say you're uh, selling a single product. You have to go through the entire, like, rigmarole. Don't do that. You just make it with MailChimp. You send out the email newsletter. People jump straight from the MailChimp newsletter to a MailChimp page. Those guys have it figured out, man. One-stop shop. All right. Now here's Aaron with Joe Weisenthal. Welcome, Joe Weisenthal. Thank you. You just got off the air, yes? Aren't you? I was like, I feel like I was watching you live on TV while I was prepping for the show, which was like one cup of coffee ago.
1: That's exactly correct. I was uh, on TV, on uh, Bloomberg TV till 5 p.m., and then I immediately got in the subway and came right here to talk with you.
0: I want to talk about how you ended up talking sure. about the markets on TV because yeah. I think it's a fairly unusual path there yeah but uh starting in the present like what do you do every day on TV
1: so a big portion of my job I co-host a TV show on Bloomberg TV it's the the daily market close show it's called what do you miss yes I have a uh, two hosts Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley and for 90 minutes we talk about the key markets and economic stories of the day plus big picture stuff that may not necessarily be on the news that day. So we might have academic economists on talking about their work on forecasting inflation or uh, asset valuation techniques or just other things. We had an interesting conversation the other day about um, the Alaska General Fund, which is a sort of quasi-universal basic income. And so we like to mix in daily market moves. And I'm obsessed with to the minute moves. I love watching bonds tick and stocks tick and currencies and all that stuff. And I watch it minute by minute on my uh, terminal, on my Bloomberg terminal. But I also like having a big picture conversation that steps away from the news from time to time and just sort of, you know, lets you play with ideas.
0: So I I should disclose that we've known each other for a period of years. And I remember when I very first met you, my co-host on the show, Max Linsky, was like, that's Joe. he he posts on the internet a lot, <laughs> like fifteen plus times every day. and so so he was underestimated. Under, yes, <laughs> I, it was a low estimate. I was like, wow, that's a lot. I mean. Yeah, it's a man, yeah. I consider myself a technologically efficient person, but yeah. I've never posted more than once on the internet during the day.
1: I always get scared like by the different ways like I get introduced because so for a long time, and I still do, I get up very early. Yes, and I would like meet like friends of my wife. And they're like, oh, you get up really early. Like <laughs> oh, you're, that's the, the, you're the
0: girl. You're, you're the one who gets guy. up
1: at 4 a.m. every day. It's yes. Like, I do in addition to a bunch of other stuff. So yeah. it's like in this case, I was introduced as the person who tweets a lot or whatever it was. So now it's the and sometimes it's the person who gets up early. But that's all right.
0: Yeah. I, even at the time, actually, I'll say being a person who got up early and posted a lot on the Internet was yeah. kind of contrarian. So, like, I knew people who were employed in the nascent online media world, but everyone was kind of like, oh, you know, the speed, it's going yeah. so fast. Everyone just wants to get their quick take out. Yeah. And you were like the person who was, like, getting all those quick takes out and f- uh, fueling I, the fire. I I,
1: I I was the one that ruined media by yes, sort of single-handedly. this excessive drive with speed and crazy amounts of posting and not uh, not spell checking and <laughs> like that. But it actually... I've always... I don't know why I like it. It's fun. But it really also, I think, has uh, worked out well for me because it dovetails very well with how markets move. And really, things do move five minutes later and stories break and a stock that was up at 935, maybe down at 940. And if you're in the market, if you're a trader, you're watching all those moves. So my sort of obsession with being online all the time and tweeting and writing blog posts whatever actually worked out very well for covering markets. It's
0: not really strange that something like financial reporting is something that drives the speed of media, the reason why people printed newspapers and put them on ships to other continents is everyone was trying to get financial information a beat faster than everyone else, and that's a really common theme. But for you, to end up a person wearing a suit talking about business on TV, what was the first time you were like, I should create some reporting or media about the world of Wall Street or finance?
1: I'll start off by saying it's weird every day still putting on a suit. Every day I put on a tie and it never feels normal. I always kind of laugh like this is ridiculous. And if anyone sees old pictures of me on the Internet when I had a beard and really long hair and was wearing (laughs) some Western shirt, it's still weird to me. Like that's who I am. You know, I was... I used to live in Austin, Texas. And so people from Austin, Texas, I think there's a stereotype about how they look like slackers and how they dress and all that stuff. And I sort of I fit that stereotype for a while, I'd say.
0: What brought you to Austin in the first place?
1: It was really simple. I hated cold weather and I went down there for college and I had heard cool things and I like country music. It was just I was like, I just want to go there. And I didn't have any idea like what I wanted to do. I never thought I would get into journalism or anything like that. When I was in high school, uh, my final years of high school were the peak years of the uh, dot-com bubble, and that was just really cool. Like, everyone was into the markets in those days. It was just a national phenomenon. Everyone seemed to be getting rich, and I was no better than anyone else at sort of succumbing to the mania and just like, oh, this is a great new world, and we're all going to be rich. and we're gonna have peace because the Cold War is over and there's nothing bad looming on the horizon at all, and everything's gonna be awesome. I got really into the stock market. One of my best friends in high school, his dad had a uh, small portfolio management company. I uh, did a little sort of like, I guess you'd call, it intern work for them. But uh, I never thought, even in college or anything, that that would be a career. Like I didn't even know what a financial career was or anything. Like, I didn't know people who were on Wall Street or worked at hedge funds or investment banks. I was living in Vermont at the time. So I was always interested in the stuff, markets, but it never occurred to me that like, I would somehow end up having a career following them in any way.
0: What was the first step towards that career?
1: It was between, I graduated college in 2002, and I really didn't start writing about finance, not until 2008. Really, so I had like you know a bunch of just random stuff. I uh, my first job out of college was I was a substitute teacher in the Austin Independent School District. I made sandwiches at a uh, food co op in Austin. It was like a hippie food co op, so I made like barbecue tofu and hummus sandwiches and stuff. And so that was like my first like job. But eventually, like I was there for like a year and a half out of college, and I started getting a little bored. Yeah. It's hot. Texas is really hot. I was sort of down, and it just so happened that friend from uh, high school that I met who I worked for, he was actually opening up a little office in New York to do research, and I kind of begged him for a job. I yeah. wanted to get out of Austin, and this just seemed like a chance to do a fresh start, and you sort of, after cajoling him and browbeating, he hired me, so I moved to uh, New York in 2004.
0: Yeah. For some reason, I thought you came to New York to do like musical theater or
1: something. So, oh yeah, so that's the other. Because I remember yeah, once yeah. I was
0: insulting musical theater, and then I was like, "Oh, whoa, wait, I think Joe's into musical." Oh, theater. I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> I'm sure I
1: wasn't offended because most musicals are terrible. So that's the other aspect. So, my first dream, yeah, was uh, me and my good friend Reese from Austin. We wrote a couple of musicals together. I wrote the music. He wrote the book. We actually produced them on our own. We entered them into festivals. It was really fun. And I was uh, I was working at Wheatsville, the food co-op, and we had applied for the New York Fringe Fest. So we yeah. had this idea that we were going to get our musical into this Fringe alternative theater festival yes. in New York. And then we're going to – it'll be a hit. Yeah. And then we're going to get off Broadway, and then we'll start our careers in musical theater. And we put together what I thought was a great application. All those press photos. We recorded a really nice version of the soundtrack, all this stuff. And it was like longer and longer, and we didn't hear back. And I was like, well, it had never occurred to me we would get rejected. I was just certain that we would get in. And then finally, you know, I was working at the co-op. I sent – I think it was Reese. I gave him the key to my mailbox, and I said, oh, go check it. And he came back with the envelope. And I was like, this is it. This is the – This is the first scene of the is movie. It. And we open up the envelope, and it's like one of those like, classic rejection letters. It's three sentences. And I could go back to that moment – and I was probably one of the most crestfallen moments of my life. And I remember I was behind the deli and I said to my colleagues, I was like, I need a minute. Yeah. And I like went back to like the sort of private area and I sat on like a big bucket of pickles. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know if I like cried. I might have, but at least I like put my head down and I was like really depressed. And I sat there for like two minutes. And I was like, I gotta go back to work. And But it was like, that was the moment that was like that part of my life, Was done, and so you were, and
0: you were like, so you were like, that's it for me, musical field. I was pretty. You knew on that that sack of pickles. I think, like
1: at that moment, I more or less sort of decided that was it. I mean, that was probably stupid. Like I (laughs) should have stuck with it. Anyway, so that was that.
0: So what? What did you? You still came to New York though. So
1: yeah, because as I mentioned, I eventually got a job with a friend of mine. He launched an office here in New York. That job didn't last long, and the only reason it didn't last long is he had come to New York to uh, open this office and then he decided it didn't make sense for him to have this office in New York and so he was leaving. And I wasn't ready to leave New York but I also didn't know what I was going to do in life. I studied international relations in college which is like that's not anything really. What did you
0: think that was at the time?
1: I don't know. I, I, I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. Maybe I thought I'd like you know work for some NGO or the UN or something. I don't yeah. know. But I didn't have any skills nothing technical even though I had like been studying you know doing um stock market research. I didn't really have any like sort of like classical skills that would sort of lend me a job on Wall Street or anything like that. So I was just really... I don't know what I'm going to do. But I guess there was 2005 or something like that. Or I did think that this new world of blogs that was happening, Gawker, all these people launching their own blogs, I very early on just thought, this is incredibly cool. You know, I've always been opinionated or wanting to say my take on the issue of the day. And so it just... I was very drawn to that and I didn't know what I wanted to do or whether I want to write professionally, but I had the idea that, well, I'm interested in markets and economics through this work. It's conceivable that maybe I would revisit that at some point. So I'm going to start a blog writing about markets and economics topics. And if nothing else, at least that'll keep myself fresh. So I don't know if anyone's ever going to read it or anything like that, but if nothing else, it's a way for me to keep on top of the news and not forget what I'm into.
0: Hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly for a word from our sponsor, Credible.com. Student loans can completely wipe you out if you don't get a handle on them. How can you get a handle on them with Credible.com? It's an online marketplace for student loan refinancing and using their simple platform. It takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. You could save, let's see the average user who refinances through credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. You can think about what you could do with $19,000. It's free to use. And if you check your rates with them, which again only takes two minutes, it does not affect your credit score. So you've got nothing to lose. And For a limited time, listeners to this show can get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash longform. Pay off your student loans faster, lower your monthly payment, whatever works for you, go to Credible.com slash longform. Thank you, Credible.com. Here I am back with Joe Weisenthal. that first series of pieces you do on your yeah. own blog, like I feel like everyone kind of can imagine themselves being a commentator and then yeah. you like hand them the mic and they're like, whoa, I, I, I'm not sure if my opinions really, you know, like what I, was I'll, it like actually putting your ideas on the internet?
1: I don't know, but like I would dread going back and looking at those early posts. Yeah. I mean, I have a hard time. Is reading. this like
0: a blog spot kind of situation? We use
1: type pad. Okay. TypePad. And it was a friend of mine. We actually, it was a co-authored yeah. and that blog was called the stalwart.com. That's my, Current Twitter handle, the yes. stalwart, because I made that Twitter handle before it ever occurred to me that Twitter would be like a professional thing. So yeah, like, but uh, I, I really would not wish myself. A, you just again, you just to look You probably
0: at just SEO'd it. it by mentioning it.
1: Right, I have to go look now. <laughs> uh, but we just like you know an interesting comment we heard on a company transcript of a conference call or. Yeah. You know, that back then people still used to link to other stuff on the internet. or so still a link to something cool that we saw on a tech blog. yeah, and just whatever it was. And slowly, you know you start to like build up a little readership. Maybe if you link to someone, then that person would notice it. Remember blog rolls where oh, people yeah. would have like their list of uh, blogs that they read, and then you say, "Hey, I'll add you to my blog role if you add me to yours." And you just sort of like slowly build it up. And that was really fun. I wasn't making any money, of course, but that's all right. I, you know, so my then girlfriend or fiance now wife, she had moved to New York around that time, and she had like some odd jobs, so she was kind of keeping things together. She kind more. of floating you. Yeah, it was pretty key support in a key time in my life. Otherwise, I don't know what it have
0: So. When you bite off a chunk like uh, what's happening in the markets today, like that's a broad swath of the world, and I think I first probably came across the stuff you were doing at Business Insider, which I guess maybe a couple years after that. So that I
1: I uh, I was I joined that in 2008.
0: When you're like looking at such a broad swath, like no one gets hired by the Wall Street Journal to cover. The entire right. world of finance, yeah. you know.
1: That was the fun thing about <laughs> blogging at a site, Business Insider. We had like five people in the early days. Yeah, we literally all of us covered everything.
0: Were you like RSS junkies? Like, how did you approach the task of covering everything that was happening?
1: That's a great question. So, I mean, kind of all of the above. So, I'm sure I probably at the time had RSS feeds of a hundred different sites and blogs that yeah. I was reading.
0: Primarily, I would just subscribe to lots of things yeah. in RSS and then abandon that RSS reader after like overloading oh, so it. So
1: rather than cleaning up your blog lines or whatever, just, just, just find mo- it, launch a new it's one. It's just like, well.
0: like, like don't clean up the campsite. Just like burn yeah. it and then go to another campsite. Yeah. I
1: think I, I'm pretty sure that's exactly how yeah. I did. Because once you, you know, it's too painful to unsubscribe to th- something. Yeah. Just go to the new thing. But it was really all of the above. Read 100 blogs. We have. Bloomberg and CNBC on TV. The other thing, and this was pretty important to me from a sort of career perspective, I started reading tons and tons of um, sell side research. So the Wall Street banks like Goldman, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, and so on, they're always pumping out research every day on various economic and market topics for their clients who are traders and hedge funds and stuff like that. And so I started like, trying to it was a little bit hard to get on those lists because they don't want to just send it out to anyone yeah but eventually you like find sources maybe at a hedge fund who will forward you when they get interesting material and i started consuming a lot of those research notes and they were really important to me for two reasons one is that um it just helped me get a feel for what the storylines were you know it wasn't that hard to figure out the storylines in 2008 the economy was collapsing but you start to pick up these threads that uh, everybody is talking about. And so you know, people start focusing on something that the Bank of Japan is doing or a, a new tool that the European Central Bank has added to its monetary policy arsenal. And that gives you an idea of like, OK, I want to focus on this. But the other reason that I felt I gained a tremendous advantage, insight from starting to consume this in high quantities, is I started to learn to read the materials that was obviously targeted towards traders. This is uh, reading material, these, you know, it's PDFs, these research notes that they're pumping out every day, explicitly written for the trader audience or for the investing audience. And so if they're going to do it professionally, then you think, okay, I want to, to some extent, emulate this tone, this pace, this way they're talking. And I think that that sort of helped me hone a style of journalism early on that understood the audience.
0: That's interesting because I thought when you first started going down that line, I thought you were saying, yeah, I needed to put myself in the shoes of these traders and I'm not actually trading, but I'm like imagining being them. But the way you described it actually suggests more, I want to understand the people who are creating media for the traders and that's the mold I see myself in, but I'm a different outside channel of potentially competing information.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Like I recognize that the people on Wall Street, in the banks, creating research every day, they're media creators. They're in the same business as we are. What do they want? They want attention, why? Yep. Because subscribers. they too. want subscribers, they want to build their list if I'm a trader and I see a research analyst consistently coming up with ideas, then the theory is that then I'm gonna trade more with their bank as a sort of like reward for them having good ideas. So they're in like, they're in the eyeballs business. Like they're in the page views business, essentially like, and I recognized that pretty early on that I was in the same business to some extent as these analysts. And I think that really helped me sort of figure out the tempo and styling That worked. And I think part of the reason we uh, made a name for ourselves as a business insider in those early days is because we were sort of we didn't have a paper. We didn't have any sort of like legacy journalistic forms. We could just write in this way that we thought traders would like.
0: Knowing that there's a well-known sort of analyst tone, which... I'm only lightly familiar with, sure. but instantly I'm just like zone out, or instantly I'm yeah. like, like I always remember like for a period when uh, Longform had an app when I'd follow like Apple yeah. product news really quickly and like sales calls and stuff. like that. Anytime an analyst came on, I was just like, oh god, yeah. this tone is so full of shit. Like right. I, I actively don't believe this person because of the way that they're yeah, presenting yeah. themselves. So your tone is different. Like how did you develop a voice that was your own, especially knowing that you were being read in parallel with this kind of stuff. Like, what is the, the stalwart voice?
1: Well, I want it to be more enthusiastic. I mm. think that I would characterize, to the extent that there's you know a stalwart voice, it's one of <laughs> unironic enthusiasm. And I really get hyped up about the upcoming jobs report or the daily survey of regional manufacturers from the Philadelphia Fed or CPI or a Bank of Japan decision. And I think, although I said our audience or a lot of traders, that's not a big enough audience for a commercial enterprise, so we want to like bring in a lot of people. I want my job to be like, you've never thought about this before in your life. And after you follow me or read this, I want to convince you that it's cool and you're gonna get excited about it the next time. And I think the only way you could do that is A, you know, becoming fairly knowledgeable about something. Yeah. And B, a genuine enthusiasm. Because you know, you know, enthusiasm is infectious. And I think that, like, um, in a lot of uh, eco and market stuff, historically, there's been, like, this sort of, like, wink-wink knowing, yeah, it's kind of nerdy. Sure. Oh, it's boring. Only us dorks would care about this X report. And I'm, like, I hate that. Like, no, it's really cool. And, And everyone could get into it if people exhibited the proper enthusiasm.
0: I'll admit that I was probably previously one of the people that you're describing who's resistant. And for me personally, this last year of cryptocurrency news has kind of like hooked me. But it has like been a weird gateway drug where I'm like, oh, like what are index funds? What like how does all this stuff work? And I get that now it must have been challenging to. Convey that enthusiasm during the years two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. You know, it's kind of like, hey, jobs reports yeah. are coming, and it's terrible.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a uh, there was a doom porn element yeah. that you could tap into, and so it was really bleak times. But on the other hand, it was exciting, and I mean, I I think like thinking back on those times, we didn't know if capitalism as we knew it was going to come to an end. And people had outlandish ideas about where things were going to go. Oh, we're going to have hyperinflation or we're going to nationalize all the banks and we're not going to have private banks anymore. And the interesting thing about those times is like things that seem really crazy to say now or in retrospect, everything seemed weirdly plausible in that time. And there was a certain, uh, the word I would use is uh, openness. It's like you're on a path. And then suddenly, like, you come to a clearing in the woods and you could go in any direction and you really just don't know which way you're going to go next. And I think that was like 2008, 2009. Like, I just don't think people knew the future did not seem very prescribed. Like, we didn't know what was going to happen next. So I think that was it was not that hard to get people excited about it.
0: How long did it take you and what kind of research did you do to feel like? You could argue with someone who's a Goldman Sachs analyst or, you know, someone who's uh, got 20, 30 years of experience and potentially like an advanced degree in economics. I
1: still would probably even hesitate at this point to say, (laughs) like, oh, yeah, I could argue with someone (laughs) with an advanced degree in economics. But there was a point in late 2009 or early 2010. I had this realization in a meeting that the acute period of the crisis was coming to an end. And it was very easy to create news in 2008, 2009. Like every day it seemed like the world was ending or bank was failing or something. The stories write themselves, kind of, right? Yeah. It's not very hard to write stories when all that's happening. And I kind of had remember having this thought that, okay, it's getting a little bit harder, that things are getting a little bit more stable. And the sort of uh, bread and butter story that we had sort of uh, – built our name on they weren't working as well. People weren't clicking on them as much. We just sort of noticed that you couldn't just do Doom every day. And I had this pretty, like, vivid idea, like, I better learn some new stuff because the old tricks (laughs) aren't working. And I sort of then made the point, I want to learn a little bit more about how economics works. And I want to learn a little bit more about how these data points work and stuff like that so that I can say something informed about them. And then I would say in a... 2010 2011 is when I first started having some opinions of my own that I felt confident enough that I would stand these opinions up against conventional wisdom in certain areas. And you know, probably a lot of it was misplaced confidence, but you know, when you're young, that's the thing, right?
0: Well, that journey kind of mimics the journey of Business Insider itself. Yeah. So I remember when Business Insider. It's hard for me to line any of this up with years. It's all I hate is the late aughts. Uh, But, you know, where Business Insider was almost synonymous with the kind of aggregation style, like every single business story written by anyone. We're going to take a paragraph of that story and link out to it. And we're going to write a hyperbolic headline. And I don't know if that stuff stopped working or that stuff stopped being like interesting or whatever, but there definitely was a shift where it became more of a equal to a bunch of business publications. And also those business publications became more like business insider and everyone kind of met at a weird layover ad middle that like, I wouldn't, I I would say which one of these is the old magazine and which one of these is the new website? Like, Forbes think, like, and Business Insider are more like each other than they've ever been before, probably, right yeah. now. What, like, how, what was your role in sort of that editorial direction?
1: Well, you know, I think I had a substantial role in the sense that I couldn't not have because there weren't that many people there for a yeah. long time. My boss, who at the time, Henry Blodgett, who still runs it, just a brilliant web publisher, absolutely brilliant editor, someone who really just sort of saw the evolution of media way in advance of most people, I think he recognized that we had to climb the food chain, so to speak. And I think if you look at a lot of the early digital publications, they sort of went a lot, you know, very similar trajectory. If you go to probably the very earliest Gawker posts, yes. it would be like a link to something that was in the New York Times or the New York Post with a couple of snarky lines. And yep. that was it. And then at some point, they're like, okay, well, this is working, but we want actually people to come here and we want people to be linking to our stories. And the only way to do that is to then create the original reported material, really sharp analytical work, whatever it is, that instead of you just becoming this sort of uh, gateway to other stuff, you're the destination.
0: And I think that also... That in total, whether it's uh, Business Insider or Gizmoda or any of these things, they suggested this publishing universe in which to be a business or finance reader, you couldn't simply read one publication. You had to get someone to organize all of the publications and ideally run them through a filter so that you could kind of see them each in the same light. Uh, It's a complicated path for the reader and not one that I was totally aware of when it was happening.
1: Well, I mean, it was a weird time. There was so much content and, you know, it's funny now thinking about the media because now the main anxiety is that we all go through one funnel or two funnels, Facebook or whatever to find the news and people are sort of worried that it's gone way too far in the other direction. Yes. So at one point there was this huge jungle or orchestra of all these different players making different noises and, you know, the ones that stood out recognized that there was a role to play in aggregating some of this. You know, now it's we well, and then the
0: aggregators, yeah. the aggregators aggregated the aggregators and it food chain is a, a pretty accurate uh, yeah. model, I think, for it. So you started out like doing this kind of posting and then you were also hiring people and trying to clone yourself, as it were.
1: Yeah, uh, I would say that's right. And that was like pretty hit or miss for a while for a couple reasons and i would say the main one is that none of us at the time really had any management experience <sighs> or editorial experience or anything yeah and it's just like it's uh managing and editing a those are two different things and some people are good at one n- not the other both of those things though are like are skills like anyone else that if you're a beginner at you're probably going to be very bad at right? yeah and so towards the end of my Business Insider career and I left in uh, 2014, in those later years, the company, and this is because people who are way more organized than me, had sort of built a very efficient machine at taking young writers and turning them into great internet writers. People who had the intuition to know when a story was going to pop, to know how to frame a story, to be able to move fast and all this stuff. But that really took a long time. And in the beginning we would uh, bring people in and unfortunately, you know, some people, they took to it and they got it and they were like one of us and others. We didn't have the skills as managers to really teach them as well as we could have. And we got better at it over time. And we said, okay, well this worked, this didn't. You start to institute more formalized training programs and stuff like that. But all of us were beginners at that. And that was a really hard aspect of growing it. But what you realize is, I think there's this, uh, it's like a Silicon Valley cliche. They talk about culture, eat something for lunch or something. They're really into culture in Silicon Valley. But after having gone through that experience at Business Insider for six years, I totally get what they mean by culture in the sense that you create this total environment in which everyone is sort of united around a single purpose and everyone feeds off each other and everyone learns from each other in a very efficient way. And once you build that, it's incredibly hard to stop because it becomes this organic living thing that becomes very efficient at doing the task. But it's very difficult to ramp up to that level.
0: I think people who don't have that much firsthand experience with Silicon Valley would be surprised to learn that some of the most repeated ideas are not technological, but yeah. basically how to manage a growing group yeah. of people who don't know each other and may not have good social skills right. and may have never had to work with other people before. Like that is much more what the mantra of basically the mantras of Silicon Valley are how to manage people and how to be an autocratic leader who like takes those people to the promised land. There's almost no other like people to be in that System.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's really probably what distinguishes between the companies and organizations that really thrive and succeed and grow at a pace that's sort of mind boggling versus everyone else. And I just don't think, like I said, my old boss at Business Insider, Henry, was fantastic at it. But we were all beginners at it. And it's really hard to manufacture. And I think you could even imagine... Taking all of us today and putting us in a new spot, and maybe it wouldn't work because it's sort of the uh, it's the petri dish, and you need the lightning to strike and just the right way to get the organism forming. And you can't the idea of just knowing what to do and replicating is very hard.
0: Did you consider Business Insider a startup when yeah. you were working there? Yeah, yeah,
1: it definitely was. I feel like there I mean, was an
0: era where media companies were startups, and then I don't know that like that idea died at some point in time, like or they like. Covering startups and being a startup became less, like, like, fluid and yeah, harmonic. I think
1: it may have taken a little while to realize we were a startup. Yeah. But we absolutely were. I mean, we were VC-backed, yeah. insane growth targets, very brutal culture of eliminating what wasn't working. Mm. And so if you're trying to do cover a certain topic area or trying to do a certain post or experiment – and no one was reading it. It wasn't resonating with readers. Yeah. There was very little emotion about saying, no, nope, because there just isn't the runway or the luxury or the money to do something that's not resonating very long.
0: Does that mean that working at Business Insider for those five or six years was – I mean, that was a pretty big bet on your part um, yeah. in the same way that like being part of the founding team of a startup is a big bet?
1: It was for sure. I didn't really think of it at the time as such. I mean, I was getting paid a, yeah. a decent salary, so I did not think of myself as, oh, I'm living on ramen and hopefully it will make a fortune. It was a good job. Yeah. In retrospect, it worked out way better than I could have ever imagined. And you know, it became a much bigger thing than I could have ever guessed in 2008 by a long shot. And it turned out to open up all kinds of doors for me. So in retrospect, it was certainly, it had that asymmetrical aspect of a startup and it worked very well, but I didn't really think of myself as making some big bet. I didn't have some other obvious thing. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have some really cushy job lined up at the Wall Street Journal or something that I said no to. So I thought several times that we might not make it in the early years. It was hard and the advertising market was terrible in 2009 and 2010 because of the economy. So I certainly thought it was plausible that we were going to all lose our jobs, but I wasn't too worried.
0: What do you think in retrospect about guiding editorial policy in that kind of a startup being like sink or swim, like give the people what they want, like the numbers don't lie kind of matter? Like it was certainly the dominant thinking at the time. And then there was... This other sort of older magazine thinking, right. which is we know what the audience wants better than they do, yeah. and we're not gonna right. like subject this to uh, user testing like they test movies. I haven't really ever talked to someone who that was a big part of their editorial um, vision. Like,
1: yeah. Um, no, we were like, you know, traffic was really important, and that drove a lot of editorial decisions. So I'll say a few things. There were entities that launched around the same time that Business Insider did. Yeah. Where the founders and editors made a point of, oh, we're you know projecting an era of we're above this. Yeah, And some of them even took shots at us and they're sort of snooty towards us and stuff like that. They did, for the most part, did not thrive as well. So it's great to sort of have that stance. It's also good to have a job and to work and to be able to hire more people and create jobs and stuff like that. So- I, I it is what it is. I will say furthermore, you know you talked about you mentioned the evolution from when you start as an aggregator we started as an aggregator until we did a lot more original stuff. I totally stand up our work. I probably did some things that in retrospect I'm embarrassed of or that was stupid or I exhibited poor judgment, but I'm proud of the body of work yeah. that I wrote there. And I think a lot of people who either are still there or came through there are genuinely proud of the reporting they did. And so I think in the end, the trade off between sort of quality or editorial vision versus numbers tends not to be in the outcome, it's not that bad. You know, in, in Wall Street, you hear that uh, phrase long term greedy where you're not going to sort of try to make the most all the time on every single trade. You want to establish a good rapport with customers or whatever, and then the long-term pays off. And there was certainly that mentality. I mean, we sacrifice page views or whatever because there are things that don't help the brand, and we have to make decisions. We're, we're business insiders, so yeah. we can't do stories that have nothing to do with business, or if we do, we can't do them too often. And so you you make sacrifices here and there, and you just sort of – you navigate it. And I think it's uh, – you know, a lot of people thought it was going to be the end of journalism, that digital outlets driven turned by out traffic. something
0: else was the end yeah. of journalism.
1: <laughs> then, then, like that, this traffic driven mindset was going to destroy all this media. But yep. you look at like all these publications that were pretty stat obsessed, they've all done great stuff. Gawker did fantastic stuff in the end, they had a culture that was very traffic driven. BuzzFeed, extraordinary journalism there, they've had a culture that's very focused on growing and displaying the page view count on every story. So, I guess in theory, there's a problem, but in practice, a lot of these places have done great stuff.
0: Well, I was curious almost the other direction, which is so you brought up those analysts report. Yeah. All of these analysts are in some ways reporting blind. Uh, they don't have to sell anything, they All don't right. have to get page views, they don't have to get eyeballs, but they also don't have that feedback of, what are people actually interested in terms well, of what they're writing about? Well,
1: they, do, they get it in some sense because they get calls from their traders right. and they get activity. But I mean, uh, that's uh,
0: more of the anecdotal, like magazine style. Yeah. Like, people loved my New Yorker story. Right. People sent Trust like me. snail mail. Yeah, like, they love it. I got Trust seven me. postcards about it.
1: But I, I, I think what you're getting at is totally right in the sense that if you use that instant data feedback smartly, You'll do better stuff like you could use that to do great stuff so it's not like oh we're just gonna go for traffic it'll be cheap but we need the traffic it's like if you really look at what's resonating you could say if i really dig in here there's an audience for this and then i can hammer away at it and so you could use it to really improve the core journalism well
0: and i think about it also in terms of like the present day um cryptocurrency is a great example of who's who's driving the ship here really are the topics that make great narratives and that make people want to click like cryptocurrencies yeah. in some ways becoming bigger business stories because they have a virality in their narrative, which eventually is a feedback loop that drives the market. Like,
1: Yeah, I think crypto, I think, is really exactly as you describe. And it's funny. It, it reminds me of sort of 2008, 2009. You know, I use that metaphor of the clearing in the woods. Like yeah. Nobody knows what the heck any of this is. Yeah. Even the smartest people in the space they're just guessing. Yes. I mean, there's no one who's there's no crypto expert in the world. Maybe on the technical side, like people who, you know, developers for like blockchain stuff. But there's nothing that's provably wrong in crypto. Yeah. Is how I think about it. You know, some people say smarter stuff than other people, but it's so wide open and it's interesting too. You mentioned earlier that through crypto you had gotten you're getting more excited about the markets than you had been in the past and want to learn more and it's interesting watching on social media people getting into economics via crypto (laughs) because i see a lot of stuff and i'm just gonna say it's like total nonsense It's like if you
0: got into zen meditation through teenage mutant yeah yeah
1: it's like i see a lot of stuff that's A, total nonsense, like people forming like fresh ideas about how economics works. But not only that, it's very much the nonsense that I remember reading in like 2009 when people got really into gold and hated the Federal Reserve and all this stuff. And then people formed all these ideas and it's like we're seeing another round of this. People getting these really bizarre ideas about how fiat currency and the Federal Reserve work. We just find it. Everyone has to go through the process. Some will stick with that forever. But it's like crypto is like... um, revived all these stories that had laid dormant for a while
0: what's it like as someone who really rode this new medium blogging yeah and developed like techniques and patterns around it like i haven't even really asked you about the like getting up really in the morning and sure. posting <laughs> a bunch you can there's lots about yeah. that online if you're curious yeah, about yeah. uh the sleep habits or yeah. the uh, posting habits of my guest there's a new york times magazine uh profile which covers much of that but So you rode this wave, and then you jumped off it. Now you're on TV, and particularly you're on kind of a TV web station that plays on the website. It's like a totally different format. You can't use any of your old tricks. Like, what is it like trying to reinvent that kind of newness in presentation, format, tone?
1: It's been an uh, amazing experience. I mean, I never thought that I wanted to do TV. If you had asked me four or five years ago, about financial TV, I'm like, ah, you know, it's yeah. kind of just how I used to consume media when I was in high school. Yeah, and I didn't think it was the wave of the future. And I was a hardcore digital partisan. I was like, no, this is the future. But you know, I just sort of tell you like how I ended up going to Bloomberg and doing TV. So um, it was like 2014. I had been at BI uh, almost six years, and I was like starting to feel a little bit tired. You know, getting up <laughs> early. I had some moments. Bi was getting very big and established where I would like see someone in the elevator and I'm like, oh, did you just start? And they'd be like, oh, I've been here nine months. And I'm like, damn, like, I'm really like losing I'm track of- I'm a terrible manager. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I started, like, oh, that makes me feel really bad. But I was still enjoying it. Yeah. And then uh, Bloomberg came along and uh, Josh Turingle, who's now at Vice, he was at Bloomberg. And he came to me and he pitched me on this job, which would be- sort of half doing digital stuff and co-hosting a TV show. And it it was a very difficult decision to go because I love BI and I still do. But I started thinking, I was like, if I don't say yes to this, then I can never say yes to anything again because when else am I going to get a chance in life to co-host a TV show? Even if it's terrible and I'm terrible at it and it's canceled after three months and everyone thinks... It's awful. Like, for the rest of my life, I'll be able to say, I co-hosted a cable and TV show. And so I was like, you know what? I just, like, I have to say yes to this. So I went, and I love it. I mean, co-hosting a 90-minute... The show started off at 30 minutes, but now it's 90 minutes. It's basically, like, 90... <laughs> it's a
0: pretty mi- big jump.
1: Yeah, it sort of expanded over time. It then went to an hour, and, you know, schedule changes, and stuff like that. But um, to me, the greatest thing in life whether it's professionally or just in socializing, friends, relationships, whatever, it's just someone, like a great conversation, right? Yeah. Like, it's just like, it's just the best. Like, if you have a really good conversation with someone, it's the best. And... I tell
0: this people all the time who, like, want to start podcasts and they'll, they'll be yeah. like, oh, we're going to have, like, all this found sound. I'm just like... Most people just yeah. wanna like um hear, hear a great conversation, conversation. like yeah. most people's a format they're familiar with is two people expressing themselves yeah. in a concert with some rhythm. Yeah, with and each it's other. like all
1: the best things in life, like great memories. So many of them are just like you just talk to someone for yeah. hours, right? And so on a daily T V show, of course, you know, you can't we don't talk to guests for an hour at a time, but every single day without fail, yeah, there are people on the show that I'm really excited to talk about. And to talk about one of my favorite subjects, markets and economics, yeah. every single day. And so it's, you're on set and there's a camera there. There's a little bit of acting involved because you have to sort of learn a few mechanics of how to talk to the camera and stuff like that. And sometimes you have to read headlines. But every day you get to at least have a couple really interesting conversations. That's just great. It's awesome.
0: So, okay, it's just five days a week? Yeah. All right, so that means you were on air for seven and a half hours a week. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, just like by the laws of probability, yeah. like, are you hitting points where you're like, I have no idea what this person's talking about? I feel I'm like <laughs> I'm underprepared <laughs> well, for a podcast news, so, I do every three weeks.
1: So, the good news is I have two fantastic co hosts. Yeah. And we certainly can lean on each other for preparation. In the sense, like someone will be like, you know what, we're talking about oil. You're the one who knows oil really well. Yeah. I might ask a question, but I'm going to lean on you. Yeah. Or whatever it is. Or maybe it's something I'll be really interested in, maybe uh, some sort of academic thing on wage growth. You know, we'll all participate, but I'll make sure that I've read the paper. So there's no way to avoid the possibility that. You're going to have a different level of preparation for different guests, but you sort of get a feel for how to participate in any conversation. And, you know, like if you like as soon as you hear someone talk, you you can start to get in the habit of hearing the next question, something they said. You're like, oh, you said that about drilling in Texas and why it's on the rise. Can you explain why uh, oil drilling in Texas is on the rise? And so you like pick up some skills and habits and then also between the three hosts. Rarely is there a problem with preparation.
0: Are you thinking about like what's I basically have just tricked you into coming to this podcast <laughs> to talk to me about cryptocurrency, but I'm hosting a podcast right now about cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot about how much does the person listening to this show know? Yeah. Like, how do I make sure that me, the guest, and the person listening to this are all enough on the same yeah. page that this isn't a disaster? And you're covering a way uh, broader swath right. of financial topics. H- how do you engage with knowing where your audience is at?
1: I think a good host for these types of things, has an intuition about when a conversation has reached a juncture in which the casual listener is about to get confused. <laughs> yes. You know what I'm saying? And so you might say, like, you're talking to a guest about Bitcoin or whatever, and then your guest says something like, well, you know, and ever since uh, they soft fork segwit into Bitcoin. Yeah. And you're like, for the listeners... You yes. don't understand. And then you like sort of like maybe you do the explication or you have them do it, or explain what a soft fork is. whatever it is. I think that like you just sort of you just feel it. Yeah. It's like we need to pause for a second and make sure that we all get to common ground. And they're like, all right, let's and when I listen to good conversations and I listen to interviews and I listen to hosts who I really admire on TV or other podcasts, the best ones seem to have an intuition of when the conversation is going to a point where they need to pause it and have something clarified. I think I'm better at that than I used to be. But I think that that's kind of like one of those skills you just have to sort of pick up over time.
0: I watch you a lot on Twitter because you tweet a lot and I uh, unfollowed almost everyone. I except people I know in real life and I know you in real life. And A lot of this action is happening online in real time in Twitter. Like, uh, I hope you don't take offense at this, but, like, if I were to take one channel of Joe, I would take the Twitter channel. Like, it's got everything. It's got stuff from the show. It's got this. It's got this. It's got the whole bag. People are interacting with you and chopping it up, and, like, people are insulting each other and yelling at each other, and it's, like, wild. Yeah. And then you got, like, TV, which is, like, in its own realm, and you can't, like, instantly, like— respond to something someone yeah. says. You can't at respond to TV in right. the same way. Like, What's it like, like sort of moving the conversation into its own islanded space? Do you, is it like your brain is forking between those two? Are you like, I don't want to tweet about this. I'm going to talk about this on TV today?
1: I think there's a little bit of that. I mean, when I, one of the things that I wanted to do with the show, it's probably a cliche and I'm sure other people have said it. My goal was to sort of do a show that finance Twitter would be into, yeah. and one of the reasons I think that as my goal is that if finance Twitter people are into it or like it, then that means there's a lot of people in the world of finance who like it. Because I think that's like they sort of the people on Twitter who, for whatever reason, they can tweet probably um, are a decently representative audience of a lot of people who, for whatever similar interest, but
0: similar you know, interest should, but work prohibitions. Yeah, so work prohibitions. Yeah.
1: So I thought that was like a good way to approach it. So, you know, I think part of that is guests. I think we've had a lot of guests on the show that prior to this show would have never gone on TV, people that I basically discovered through Twitter who were not maybe like le- a sort of legacy financial voices that yeah. I've been watching when I was in high school and stuff like that. Which is not to say that, you know, we talked to them too, but I, it's a mix. We've introduced a bunch of new voices. Twitter is uh, very visual. People are always tweeting charts and stuff like that. So it was really important to do a show that was chart heavy. And it's, uh, you know, it's wonky. It's nerdy. Yeah. And, you know, so when we talk about things like inflation and the jobs report or what's happening in cryptocurrencies, like, I think it's uh, r- very important that even though sometimes we only have a short period of time, that we really get down into the muck. And even and so there's a limit on in a television uh, conversation how deep you can go sometimes because time is finite. It's not like this where we can have an incre- extremely long conversation that can breathe. But you just have to be really strategic and say, you know, I want to move it detailed pretty fast.
0: What's it like when you're bringing on people who may have never been on yeah. TV and may like have like cantankerous online personalities? Like, is it a kind of a curveball situation yeah. where you don't like? You don't know until the person sits down, really, even who they are.
1: Yeah, that's happened. It's (laughs) fun, it's exciting. And like, going back to what we were just saying, if you just sort of can quickly get in that mindset, we're just having a conversation here. I mean, I know there's a camera and all this stuff, and your face is on TV, but we're just talking. Talk to me like we're in a bar, talk to me like we're on Twitter, whatever. It usually works.
0: And you're also doing uh, Odd Lots, which is a podcast about the tech bubble in a way.
1: Well, we it's about everything. It's basically, ostensibly, it's a markets podcast, but we make a pretty big point of not being too on the news. Yeah. And so we'll talk to poker players about what poker skills can translate into trading. We'll talk to people who are academics about historical bubbles. So we'll talk about themes that we think uh, people in the market like, but it's like our kind of safe space because the news can be sort of unpleasant these days and it's very noisy. And I'm I'm guilty of it. But sometimes it's like, it's really nice coming into a room and just shutting off your phone and talking about something that's not on the news, that's totally different, or like, you know, whatever Trump is saying right now, while we're talking, we don't know about it. And that's kind of what we try to achieve on the podcast. It's still markets related. But it's like this safe space where we could sort of tune everything else out for half an hour a week and just talk about something else that interests us.
0: So where do you go from here? Like what what excites you from here?
1: I really like doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And I really I love markets. I think they're the best story. No day is like the day before. So right, everything moves in a different slightly different way or sometimes dramatically different way than the day before. And trying to figure out what the impulse is that day that are driving This new constellation of moves relative to the day before, the month before. It's just every day is a puzzle, and you wake up starting kind of from scratch. And it's really fun having the opportunity to try and figure out what's going on and talking to smart people about what's going on and having them help you figure it out. And Bloomberg is like, I kind of compare it to if you're into markets. It's kind of like if you're into chocolate and got to work at Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Because <laughs> it's just this whole world of blinking screens. Do you have a
0: Bloomberg terminal at your house? You have,
1: oh, I have it on my uh, on my uh, laptop. It's like software. Oh yeah, I
0: forgot. It's not even it's not a real terminal. So there anymore.
1: is a real terminal that yeah. has hardware and a special keyboard, but you can also it's called Bloomberg Anywhere. You can also run the core software on any computer. But it's kind of like when you go into that world, it's this a world of pure imagination. Like I want to like look up what rubber prices are doing in Vietnam up to the second and I just type it in and it's there and then it's blinking on my screen. And then I have another window open and there I'm tracking interest rates and I have another window open and whatever it is. And so you could create this whole world where you're just sort of basically in the markets. And then also at Bloomberg is like the smartest people, like there's no, because there's so many people there who are experts in things, There's an unparalleled like, oh, I want to talk to someone about steel today. So, you know, so between the sort of technological aspect and the people around it, if you're like really interested in markets, there's no better place to be.
0: I uh, I hadn't really thought about this before, but it's one of the few niches in media and journalism that's definitely not going away. Like there will be markets the markets will move money and therefore yeah, there will be like people who are going to pay for coverage of those markets
1: the, that's the thing it's like there's a lot of money at stake yeah. in all this and a lot of people have a lot on the line yeah and so there is an incredible demand for expertise and people who can convey information and deliver information and if you're good at that you know whether you're at Bloomberg or anywhere else for the amount of money it, that's at stake Media is could be a very small expense for these people. It's like, oh, yeah, of course we're going to subscribe to that. Or, of course, we're going to read that newsletter. Whatever it is, Yeah. because of the grand scheme of things, people are dealing with, you know, insane amounts of money.
0: So you came into this world um, during the dot-com crash. Yeah. Uh, we are now, uh, living in the glorious, uh, crypto age. Right. Uh, what do you think, like, the next big story, like, what do you think we're going to be talking about when we redo this interview in five years? Ugh, What's going to be the last- like...
1: It's so hard to <laughs> possibly-
0: Or what do you, what personal, like, if you, if they, if they just said, hey, you know, uh, all this generalizing, it's a, it's a little too broad. Yeah. We want you to go in- for the next year on like this so you're just yeah. gonna like dedicate your mind sure. just to one thing like what what's the most exciting um thing going on right now
1: i'm gonna just put crypto aside because yeah. it really is a fascinating world but it's yeah. almost like i feel like it would be cheating They're okay like, oh, okay another person talk about crypto yeah the other response i'd say like i think the uh the global economy is at a period of change right now most of the world was operating subpotential for many years, pretty high unemployment in Europe, pretty high unemployment in the U.S., lots of pools of untapped labor in the uh, developing world that were sort of brought into the global economy. It's at least possible that that's about to change. Unemployment rate is pretty low in the U.S. It's coming down pretty dramatically in Europe. The developing world probably doesn't have as much sort of like a big pool of untapped labor the way it used to. And that does raise the potential for some sort of shift in how the global economy operates, whether it's higher inflation. We don't really know. But it's at least possible that we're seeing some sort of turning point because of this that will cause very interesting and unexpected ripples from a sort of markets and political perspective. And I'm very excited to be following that over the next few years.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. I had a blast.
0: And that was the long form podcast. Thanks very much to my co hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Angela Velez, our incredible sponsor, MailChimp. Uh, you can always get in touch with us if you'd like to whether it's to ask a question, make a comment, or perhaps even sponsor this show uh, by sending an email to editors at longform.org. We really appreciate everything we hear from the people listening to the show. I'll see you next week. Oh, and before we go, I want to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Credible.com. It's an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Use their simple platform and it takes less than two minutes to find out if you are overpaying on your student loans. You could save thousands by refinancing. In fact, the average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. So for a limited time, listeners of the show can get $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash long form. Again, Credible.com/slash-longform, and you'll be helping support the show. Thank you, Credible.com.